0: you would please open up your Bibles. We're going to be looking at 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, and we'll be reading at verse 1 all the way through verse 11, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Paul writes, now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your precious word. Might you write its truths upon our hearts and help us to live by it rather than our own inclinations. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we pick up in 1 Thessalonians with chapter 5. And we need to know that this text that Paul is unfolding for us is really a continuation of the topic that he has already been talking about in chapter 4 that Pastor Wegner preached last week. He's talking about the day of the Lord. And last week, as Pastor Wegner preached to us... uh, ...Paul's main topic was speaking about the dead in Christ. This was a perplexing issue for a young church. They've just uh, come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. They've just been taught the gospel of grace. But then Paul has departed from them. In fact, he's been kicked out of their town. And sooner rather than later, people began to get sick... ...and people began to die... And this somewhat young, immature church is wondering what happens to our beloved brothers and sisters. And Paul wrote to them last text, telling them, well, the dead will rise first. When Christ comes in his glory, the the dead in Christ get a front row seat to all that Christ is doing. Well, now in this text, we might contrast it with the last by simply saying, Paul is now speaking of the day of the Lord... ...as it relates to those who are living right now. So how do we wait for that day well? Or maybe I could ask... ...what difference does the doctrine of the day of the Lord... ...or the doctrine of the second coming... ...have upon us now? It's somewhat of a sad reality... ...that very often when we approach something like the end times... ...or the second coming of Christ... ...or even our eternal state of glory... ...that we have a sense that those things are great in and of themselves... ...wonderful to behold... ...but not really all that useful for us now. Maybe you've even heard the phrase that someone is too heavenly-minded... ...to be of any earthly use. It's just not practical, we're often told or we often imagine... Well, Paul doesn't agree with that. He applies this text for our present encouragement so that we can be built up in faith. He wants us to think about our Lord's coming and to grow in Christ because of it. I've just just got three points for us. First, we'll see the children of the night. And then secondly, we'll see the children of the day. And thirdly, we'll see the difference ...that it makes. We'll start with the first point, children of the night. Paul starts off in verse 1, he says, "...now concerning the times and the seasons." And when you hear that word, times and seasons, that's somewhat of a, a theological catchphrase... ...referring to the second coming of Christ, referring to the season or the time... ...of the fulfillment of all of our salvation. Refers to the second coming. And isn't it true that whenever we hear about the second coming or we're told something about it, our first inclination is to want as many details as we can possibly get. If you look at the history of the church, there has been a a fascination in every age of the people of God trying to determine when Christ will return and what exactly will happen when he returns and trying to figure out all of the details. We naturally want them. But what does he say right after this? He says, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. Perhaps he says that because he's already given them sufficient instruction when he was in person in Thessalonica. But I don't think that's the biggest reason he says that. He says that they don't need specific instruction because we aren't given specific instruction by our Lord. In fact, Christ himself makes this clear. In Acts chapter 1, his disciples ask him about the times and the seasons. And this is his response. He says, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. And Paul even picks up on that theme that they really don't know. He says, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. You don't know when? But you know that he comes like a thief in the night. And that description is not unique to Paul. The idea of the second coming being described as a thief in the night, this is the way that Jesus described his second coming. It's the way that Peter describes the second coming of Jesus. And we might ask simply, what is the point of describing it along those terms? Well, it's rather simple a thief is unexpected. A thief does not announce his evil intentions. He comes in the nights, and we don't always anticipate the thief. They're unpredictable. They're surprising. And this is especially true, Paul will elaborate, for the unbeliever. That is, unbelievers are totally and completely caught off guard by the second coming of Jesus Christ. Look with me at verse Three, Paul emphasizes that point. He says, while people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. He's describing the ignorance of the world as it relates to the doctrines of Christ, and specifically the second coming of Christ. They believe that there is peace and security. If you could uh, describe their words, they would say things like, everything is just fine. We don't see any danger, therefore danger must not be coming. We're strong. We're secure. Nothing will happen. Because after all, nothing that bad has happened before. And so they don't see the danger. They're like a man who... ...imagines that his house is always going to be okay... ...and therefore never puts any security measures. Doesn't put a lock on his door. Doesn't get anything for self-protection. Doesn't put any cameras or lights out in the front. He is totally and completely unprepared... ...because he assumes that no thief will ever come. Or as Paul describes it, they're like a pregnant woman suddenly surprised by the pains of childbirth. And once they have started, once they've been shocked and surprised, then they cannot escape. The child will come. The pain will come. And this is something that, sadly, we need to focus on for just a moment because Paul focuses on it, on the terrible judgment that will fall upon the unbeliever in that day. It is a terrifying day of judgment. The day of the Lord. Let me just read to you one text from Isaiah that certainly gets the point across. As Isaiah prophesies about the day of the Lord, here's what he says Wail, for the day of the Lord is near. As destruction from the Almighty, it will come. Therefore, all hands will be feeble, and every human heart will melt. They will be dismayed. Pangs and agony will seize them. They will be in anguish like a woman in labor. They will look aghast at one another. Their faces will be aflame. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. What is Paul telling us? That though there is a great danger coming, a great and terrible judgment, the world is living as if there is no such judgment. They're blinded. By Satan, the ruler of this world. They're living in darkness, trapped in it. They're ignorant of God and without hope of his saving mercy. And yet they're living as if nothing is wrong. It's a sad reality that we find ourselves in. To see a world headed for disaster. And yet utterly blind to that reality. Jesus himself speaks of this when he talks in Matthew 24. This is what he says there. He says, "...for as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days, before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man." The question for us is how do we respond to such a situation, to the reality of children of the night? Well, I think the basic premise is this. The church must continue to be a herald of all of the doctrines of God. The church must be a herald declaring first the great and terrible judgment of God, but also... Declaring the great and wonderful way of salvation to God. And the church can do this because we know the patience of God. We know about how He is drawing in His elect from all the nations. We know how He is patient and slow to the hastening of that day. In fact, we get a wonderful verse from 2 Peter 3:9 that tells us, "The Lord is not slow. To fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you. Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. You might ask ourselves today, do we believe this in the church? Do we believe that there is a coming judgment of God? Terrible. Do we believe as well that God is drawing in his elect, saving people? sending his spirit to the ends of the earth. And if those two realities are both true, then how much so should we be bold people, pointing sinners to the ark of God's salvation, that is, the Lord Jesus Christ, telling them where they can go for refuge and for help and for security. We, as the church, are to be the light which dispels the darkness And brings those who are children of the day into the very light of Christ. We must show this world Jesus. We know their end. Secondly, we need to see children of the day as well. Look with me at verses 4 through 5. Paul says, But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are children of the light children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So we know that this day is coming, but we do not know when. But the difference is, is that the believer is nonetheless prepared for it. We're children of the day. We're children of the light. Now, what does that mean, to say that we're children of the day? I think basically it means two things. It means two things. On the one hand, it indicates that we are the saved people of God. Light and darkness become in the scriptures a symbol of salvation and being lost from the Lord. And so we're saved from the darkness of our sins, and we're saved from the darkness of this world. But it also means something else. It indicates revelation, clear guidance clear knowledge. That is to say, we are saved by Christ, but we also know the plan of Christ. We know what he intends to do. We know what he intends to accomplish. And therefore, we are not surprised by the day of the Lord. But it isn't enough that we just know these things. It isn't enough that the people of God merely have knowledge. We must also live that knowledge out. And we see that emphasized in verses 6 through 7. Would you take a look there with me? Paul says, So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. There's... Three commands he gives us here. I'll outline each one of those. First, he says to believers, do not sleep. And I think he's speaking here of a spiritual sleep. Uh, At least I certainly hope so. He's speaking of spiritual sleep. In other words, he's saying, don't be lax in your spiritual life. Don't be uncaring in your spiritual life. Don't be ignorant of the word of God. Don't be dull and unthoughtful of the providence of God all around you. Do not be uncaring toward the will of God or indifferent to the plan of God. We need to stay awake. can't be asleep. Well, that is the second command he tells us to keep awake. You might think, well, we just did that one when we said don't sleep. But there's a particular emphasis here. When he says to keep awake. That word means to be watchful. It means to be on guard or alert. It's somewhat of a wartime metaphor. That is, we're to have a wartime mentality. Why? Because the flesh wars against the spirit in us. Because the world around us will tempt us and lure us. Because we have a very real enemy who hates us and seeks To destroy us. And therefore, Paul tells us if we're going to be children of the day, we have to watch over our hearts. We have to watch over our church, watch over our doctrine and our lives and our speech and everything that we do. We must be watchful, alert, because the enemy prowls. And third, he says we need to be sober, be sober minded. And here he's talking about a right state of mind. I think it is a state of mind that is informed and led by God's revelation. That is to say, we are not those who are intoxicated by the things of this world. We are not those who are consumed by worldly pleasures and worldly idols and worldly passions. You might think of a disastrous example in Belshazzar, in the book of Daniel, and on the very night that Darius the Mede is at his gate, there to kill his empire and to take it over, what is Belshazzar doing? He's feasting, and he's eating, and he's partying, and he's pretending that there is no danger on the outside. Now, these described are like pigs fattened for slaughter, they will eat and drink happily, not knowing the great danger that awaits them. But we must be awake. As well, we must learn spiritual sobriety. I uh, take that phrase from John Calvin. This is what he says He says, For this is spiritual sobriety when we use this world so sparingly and temperately that we are not entangled. With its allurements. Brothers and sisters. You cannot be. Alert. And on guard. If you are addicted to the things. Of this world. As Paul tells Timothy. That young pastor. He says no soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits. Since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. That means that you and I. Cannot be watchful. If we have become. Attached to the things of this world. We cannot be on guard if we are drowsy and sleeping at our post. Well, how can we be alert? How can we be waiting as the people of God well? Well, Paul shows us that we do this by living by faith. And practicing good works. Look at verse 8. Paul writes, But since we belong to the day, let us be sober having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. And so he's telling us that this is how we remain ready for Christ. We wait, but we wait with holiness. We wait by doing the works that Christ has called us to. We are keeping busy doing the duty of our Lord Jesus Christ. We put on faith, he tells us seeing beyond, seeing that which is only promised to us now, but which we will have in the future. We put on love, that is, we wait while bearing with the saints, sacrificing of ourselves daily and serving the people of God. We put on hope, that is, so that all that we do is anchored and sure and steadfast and immovable because of a real hope in Christ We need to see that this is how we are called to wait for Christ. Not idle. Not sitting by ourselves. But busy and full of good works. I want to read to you a text from Peter. And I want you to see how Peter applies the doctrine of the day of the Lord. I think it's fascinating and very helpful to us. Look at what he says. means living in holiness, doing the works that he has called us to. I remember uh, being somewhat younger, maybe around 14 or 15 or 16, and need to know I'm the youngest child. So by this point, I was the only sibling living at home. And we got to the point where I was old enough that my parents could go out of town for a couple of days and they could leave me by myself, which is great joy for a 15, 16-year-old boy. ...but it comes with an expectation, doesn't it? Because I knew vaguely when my parents would return... ...maybe not precisely... ...and I also knew that they had certain expectations of me when they got home. The pool needed to be cleaned of leaves. The garbage needed to be taken out. Woe to me if the, the sink was full of my dirty dishes... ...and the ground was littered with my dirty laundry... I knew that my parents were coming and they had expectations of me. And it's the same thing with Christ. He has told us that he is coming back. And he has also told us what he expects of us. He expects that we use the gifts he's given us. That we invest our talents. That we make use of our spiritual gifts. That we make disciples that we build up the church in love and in fellowship, that we be busy with the study of his word and with worship and with much prayer and much rejoicing. That's what Christ expects of us. And so the question is so clear and pressing to us. How will Christ find you? Will he find you asleep, at your post, drowsy or distracted by the world? Or will he find you busy? with the very works of God. Third point tonight, the difference that it makes. Look at me at verses 9 through 10. Paul says, for God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. We've been asking ourselves as we've looked at this text, why should we think about the day of the Lord? Why should we consider and meditate upon the second coming? And I think the answer is this. It has a special way among the doctrines of God with filling us up with divine hope. It fills us up with divine hope. That is to say, when we meditate on the second coming of Christ, we see our end. We see the goal. We see what we're pressing toward. We see what Christ is working to achieve. We see our glory itself. And we need this so often in the Christian life. Think about the Thessalonian church, for example. This is a new church. Struggling with persecution. Struggling against a wicked culture around them. They lack leadership. They lack maturity. And now, on top of it all, some of them are dying. And Paul knows that they need something real. And that the idols of this world are not going to satisfy. The, the praise of man will not suffice it for them. Only a heavenly hope is going to help them now. Nothing else will do it. And so what does Paul give to them? He tells them you're waiting for Christ. The one who comes with salvation. The one who comes with the shouts of a mighty voice. That when he comes in the clouds, he will send his elect to all the corners of this world to gather up his elect. And they will walk with him in mighty procession. Even as Christ comes to inherit all of the earth, they will be there with him, walking with their king. And we know the rest of the story, don't we? They're going to live forever with him. They're going to enjoy eternal blessedness. And so it is with us. Our hope is very real, isn't it? And that hope changes us right now in the present day. That hope is designed to lift our eyes up to Christ. It helps us to see past this world, to look beyond our circumstances, to see that which we know by faith. Make no mistake, Paul wants you to use this doctrine He wants it to be preached. He wants you to meditate upon it. He wants you to love this doctrine. Not to put it away like some old box of cluttered antique items we put in our our attic. He wants us to have it out, to have it ready, to have it in our pockets, with us at all times. How do we know this? Because look at how he ends the text. Verse 11, therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. This doctrine is for our encouragement. It's not some cheap, flimsy, fake hope of the world. It's not mere positivity for positivity's sake or wishful hoping. No, it is real hope and it builds us up and it carries us forward. We need this doctrine in our minds, and in our hearts. Because Christ is coming back for all of his elect. Let's pray.